Hello, and welcome to RRI Explained, a RESBIOS podcast. It is the aim of the RESBIOS project to embed Responsible Research and Innovation, or RRI, into four universities across Europe, in the hope of improving the interconnectivity between science research and society, with a particular focus on the biosciences. But what is RRI exactly? Well, hopefully we can find out together. Today we are joined by Dr. Phil René von Schromberg, a philosopher and STS scholar at the Kate Hamburg Kolleg International Centre for Advanced Studies, and also a guest professor at the Technical University of Darmstadt. Today, René will be discussing the history of RRI and how RRI principles have evolved since its inception. Thank you for joining us today, René. You've had a very varied career and been on the road through RRI for a long time, throughout its history. I was just wondering, could you describe a little bit your journey to where you are now and what led you to working with RRI in such a dramatic way? I think, although I didn't use the term uh, in in this way, uh, I actually was occupied with uh, the topics already when I was a student uh, at the Agriculture University in Wageningen in the Netherlands in 1980, especially when um, we had, I think it was uh, in the spring of 1980, we had a massive uh, occupation of the main administrative building of the university to protest against a university which implemented the form of education which was too much disassociated from the big, what we now call the big societal problems, um, the societal challenges nowadays. So at, at the University of Wageningen, this was, of course, uh, food security and quality of food, environmental problems, etc. So I think there were actually two major issues which are still uh, up to today. You can see a very clear line, although the uh, positions of the actors has changed uh, in, in course, whereas in the 1980s it was an activity mainly of students uh, to connect science and society. There was uh, an upcoming, let's say, movement uh, can call it the science society movement with uh, little um, units uh, emerging at various universities and which uh, later grow into a uh, more professional work also on this topic. But the main questions uh, and the, the points of departure are actually not uh, much different as today. So it's still about how we can address our uh, big societal problems uh, beyond uh, technological means because this was, of course, the historical, let's say, constant. It was always a belief that with technological innovation, we can uh, master all these problems. Uh, whereas, of course, uh, I think there has been a progressive insight over the last uh, 40 years that technological innovation is, of course, important, but you can not solve these big issues when you don't address uh, the social dimension and the social, uh, uh, social component of it as well. It's interesting that you say that it was quite student-led to begin with. Was that the temperature of the room at that moment with the student body that they felt some fundamental way that research and academia is conducted just needed to be changed? Well, I think it was a very broadly shared feeling of students. I would say it was a a very broadly carried uh, idea that the educational system at at that time uh, was too much disassociated from the social problems we face. If you now look to the same university, the University of Wagen, if you go there, 
then actually that university now advertises itself by saying, okay, we are addressing big societal issues and we address them with uh, technological and social means at the same time. So uh, in a sort of way, almost carry RRI in the main flag, uh, carrying it as a university. So you see there has been um, suddenly a a shift, uh, whereas let's say in my time, it was more or less uh, an uphill struggle for example, I did in my studies uh, a last part on science and society issues, which was very rare at those days to do that uh, within a natural science study. But these things have changed quite a bit over time, especially in the academic thinking around it. But we still uh, face the same institutional uh, problems. So as you, well, as you obviously know, uh, RRI consists of the five keys of RRI. Uh, How important do you think it was to combine these five issues under the umbrella of RRI and how has that benefited kind of research practice overall? Well, there I have to be a little bit uh, critical. Uh, In fact, uh, for me, RRI is not about these five keys at all. For me, these five keys were a sort of regress in thinking of uh, about RRI. Uh, the, the main issue um, for me for responsible research and innovation was to have, you know, similar as in the 1980s, we would have uh, an idea about research and innovation, how we can drive research and innovation towards social desirable ends. This, this is, let's say, this is a small word, but it has big problems in in the sense that you know normally innovations that come over us we are object of change rather than we we are subject of change that we the, the utopia so to speak from RRI is that we can design our innovations uh, in the way we want or even uh, have technologies and their characteristics uh, determined by with futures uh, which we uh, want them to have uh, now I think the five keys, our keys were elements which actually preceded RRI in the science of society programs, you know, when it comes to ethics or to, to societal engagement and so on. Of course, all these elements are important also in RRI, but the, the main focus is actually um, an institutional question which, um, uh, as I mentioned, remains high on the agenda. This didn't change since the 1980s. In a certain ways, it's even more problematic nowadays than then because uh, we have huge market deficits in getting the innovations which we want. It became very apparent now also with COVID. If you want to have a vaccine, uh, we have to reorganize science and also market mechanisms in order to get it. If we wouldn't have opened up science and w- if we wouldn't have subsidized the multinationals, we would not have so quickly uh, a vaccine. But this is the same for the big societal problems in uh, when it comes to climate change or food security, all these issues, they are all equally urgent as COVID. And um, a business of usual means that the transitions towards the type of innovations which are social desirable are actually blocked by these markets deficits and the way we organize and finance research and innovation. This is still the main problem. And I think uh, that issue is much more, you know, so all these keys where you refer to, they are, of course, relevant for RRI, but they are only, uh, let's say, appropriate when these keys themselves are transformed. Uh, So if you talk about ethics, for example, it's not about the ethics of new technologies, but it's what it's about organizing, what I say, organizing co-responsibility over uh, the innovation process. 
So that means also that uh, we have to go beyond uh, within science, we have to go beyond uh, issues of scientific integrity. I mean, normally scientists have refrained of taking responsibility on outcomes of science and technology beyond scientific integrity. But this is exactly what we need to do. And this is, of course, not an issue for scientists alone. This is an issue for uh, all actors involved in the innovation process, from research funders to industrial actors and, and, and to citizens. It's what I call organizing co-responsibility over this issue. And uh, this is something else than just doing ethics of, of new technologies, for example. So all these keys are relevant, but they are only relevant for me in RRI if they themselves also transform. For example, um, public engagement. Public engagement with science was indeed something which started off what I was referring to in the 1980s and actually already before that in terms of involving citizens uh, in science. But RRI is more than just, uh, let's say, putting stakeholders together. It's about creating a, a social commitment on what we want to get out of uh, science and technology in terms of social desirable outcomes. And I think only very recently you can see now institutional innovations, I would say, such as the Green Deal, what the Commission and the EU now is doing, even backing up it with uh, legislative proposals to try to foster research and innovation to the type of outcomes we want to see. So it's also indeed about becoming as a public authority, and so not just the European Commission, but all kinds of public authorities becoming more proactive in the innovation process and not leaving everything over to the markets. And I think in terms of relative progress on the issue, as I said, since the 1980s, there has been a growing insight and a change in, in the academic realm on tackling these issues. But institutionally in our society, we have seen an opposite direction where we have progressively left more things over to the market. Uh, so the last 20 years um, has been uh, very much dominated by a neoliberal thought that uh, with market innovation, we can solve these problems uh, which are facing us. And, and this is, of course, not true. No, that's really interesting. And it leads quite well onto my next question. As you mentioned that, Yes, the five keys of RRI are a good foundation, perhaps, but as, as research has evolved, how our perceptions of RRI have changed and how societal needs have changed. We would hope that these keys would evolve and the whole outlook on our RRI would also evolve with how research and societal needs change. Quite a lot of industry leads and societal actors and obviously EU projects have now kind of taken up the mantle of RRI. I'm just wondering how the perception of RRI has changed since its inception. You say it was a bit of an uphill struggle to begin with, but it seems to be fairly widely established within the zeitgeist of academia and industry. Would you say that was true? Yes, I, I, I certainly say that in terms of, of our thinking about it, uh, I think there's, there has been great progress. And uh, what is also a success in terms of, of RRI is that, I mean, we have created the last 10 years a very large community uh, across disciplines, you know, across uh, backgrounds to take up research and innovation in those terms. And I think this is, you know, even if you would uh, disagree with, uh, you know, elements of it, uh, you know, in individual insights, uh, this as a community is to create such a community, uh, such an engaged community is in itself a great success. 
And uh, certainly that has uh, contributed to further changes, uh, especially in how we fund and organize science. And uh, I think this is what you can now see also at, at the new uh, European Programme for Research Innovation, which is uh, very clearly uh, oriented around uh, societal challenges and with the missions uh, in terms of co-design and co-creation has taken up elements of an uh, of RRI thinking, which is uh, quite uh, significant. And I think this uh, has also received follow-up in, in many other member states and institutions trying to address this in the same way. RRI has traveled to China, for example. I had in 2013 already a, a workshop with the Chinese Association for Science and Technology on RRI, and eventually they have... Uh, made reverence to RRI in their uh, five-year uh, science and technology innovation program. So also internationally, it echoed quite well. So you can say that in thinking and also in policy thinking, there has been uh, significant progress. Recently, you co-authored a quite extensive review on RRI, like the, the unfinished journey of RRI. I suppose mm-hmm. this sort of rose in a couple of my thoughts, really. Just I'm just wondering... I don't know, what are the main benefits that you've seen of this intake of RRI? And what would you have changed at the inception, do you think? Would have there been some fundamental framework that you might have instilled? And then, yeah, is what is the future of RRI? As you say, it's evolving, but will it evolve into something totally different? Or do you see it sticking around in a similar form to what it is now? I think well, when we, we catch up uh, where we were in, my, in, in our previous conversation about um, about the five keys, so... You know, again, so the, the social political challenge is actually uh, how do you manage the research and innovation process? And is it possible to direct the research and innovation towards social decidable ends? And then the question, of course, is what are social decidable ends, how we decide upon them? I mean, these are the, the, the key questions. So the uh, when I left the at that time the RRI unit, uh, this was still uh, the main challenge. But then it downgraded to these five keys, unfortunately. And one of the reasons we made this review was to get RRI in its original form back on the agenda, as I put it. At the same time, though, when I left the RRI unit and started working on open science with a very few uh, colleagues. Uh, which then steadily grew over time because it became a priority of the MODAS uh, commission. Um, then I was anticipating that, uh, although we could not articulate it at that moment in such a way, but that open science would further back up uh, RRI. And this is what you can now actually see in the further evolution of RRI. So one of the elements in order to address the main question, you know, how to drive research and innovation towards social desirable ends, is that this is only possible if we open up uh, research and innovation. Means not just open access to resources like knowledge and data, but means opening up in terms of that scientists are uh, incentivized to work together. We have, in my view, uh, we have a science system which is too competitive. We lose a lot of time. I mean, researchers spend 30% of the time of trying to get research grants, which eventually they don't get. If you would use all the time they use for applying for research grants, 
in in terms of working together on a societal problem <laughs> we, we would have we would have gained one i mean it's interesting you know they made once a time a calculation for australia and for one year i think it was 2012 year they estimated that 500 years of work was wasted to apply for grants which uh, subsequently were not awarded to these researchers so you can see that our scientific system is very competitive and at the same time not collaborative. And as always, uh, we make progress uh, in the world, uh, unfortunately, when we see a crisis. So COVID was a crisis and that helped us uh, actually to accelerate also open science because there you can see that if you don't do open science, you actually, uh, it costs uh, people's life. We already saw that with in my publications, I always use Ebola and, and, and later also Sika as examples where doing open science saves lives, gets early vaccines. But um, you know how the world is organized. Ebola is uh, seen as a problem of Africa, not of the world. And COVID was something which hit all of us. So that's a little bit cynical, but we need to... Uh, but indeed, we needed a crisis like that in order to get us fully aware of the failure of how we organize and incentivize science. We really have to get away from um, rewarding scientists in terms of their outputs, in, in terms of publications. We have to reward them in their research behavior. Do they collaborate? Um, do they share data early? And uh, that's very fundamental. Uh, unless we don't make institutional changes there, we will not have the same outcomes like with COVID. We will not get, let's say, if a vaccine can count as a social desirable output, we don't get there. If we would, as I said before, if we would not have opened up science in COVID, we would have to wait 10 or 20 years for a vaccine, if at all. Because economically, apparently, it's not even beneficial for the big pharmaceutical firms to produce a vaccine like that. We face this institutional problem. And I think uh, I always call it in our international handbook on uh, responsible research innovation that open science in its radical way is a necessary condition for RRI. It's not sufficient uh, because then opening up does not mean that we can give directly uh, a direction to research and innovation, but it's essential. And without it, uh, we, we will not get there. So I, I think this is what uh, changed more recently. So open science, let's say, backing up our RI ambitions. I hope this is not just for COVID, but that this will also lead to changes in other fields. No, that's really interesting to say because, yeah, there seems to be quite a lot of competition between acquiring grants, getting publications in journals, and how scientists are evaluated on their value seems just to be kind of a way of siloing people's research rather than opening it up. So these approaches with RRI linking to open science and citizen science, it kind of makes it shareware is kind of the term that comes to mind, but where information is more easily accessible and there's less priority to keep your research to yourself until you publicize it, I suppose. And that kind of leads quite well to my other question. A few weeks ago, you were very kindly part of our Stepping Up and Stepping Out, Respios and Step Change uh, joint event on citizen science and RRI. I was just wondering, how do you feel that these other alternative approaches to research within the fields of like bioscience and sciences in general, how do they interconnect with each other? They, as you say, they probably learn a lot from each other. They're, they're all evolving systems, but I'm just wondering what your opinion is on that. 
Um, well, I mean, this is, uh, you, you mentioned uh, now, for example, uh, let's say the phenomenon of, of citizen science. And uh, I think uh, that has also evolved over the last 20 years, let's say, from uh, not just counting uh, birds or, uh, you know, looking to the stars or whatever, to a form, let's say, where, where citizen science is not just citizens helping scientists, but citizens doing science. And this actually, again, you know, raises institutional issues because citizens are normally not uh, funded. Huh? If you, as a citizen, want to do research, you apply for funding, you don't get it. I say you don't work at a university. And then you would ask, you know, why I, why did I get it and I don't get it? And they say, yeah, but you are not a scientist, even if you have a PhD, let's say. <laughs> so it, it refers a little bit to what you account as science and not. And, and there you see also the self-referential uh, element of, of science, that science is only science if it has a new institution, although nobody can um, in that institution can tell you what's the definition of science. They cannot also not tell you what's the definition of excellence or the the definition of quality of science, um, because this is all um, decided in peer review on a case-for-case basis. So it raises a sort of legitimacy issue, uh, I would almost say. And I think it's interesting that if you see uh, how forcefully uh, citizen science has developed over the years, you can see that uh, the outcome of science and technology is then also different. Because, I mean, citizen science is also science, uh, yet if citizens engage in science, they have a stake in the outcome. And that means uh, other type of outcomes. Uh, of course, if you are a climate scientist, for example, you, you, you work on uh, climate models uh, at a global scale. And uh, of course, it is all uh, from a scientific point of view, of course, all very essential. Uh, but what it means for the city of Brussels, let's say, uh, we have no idea. Uh, but if citizens engage with the same topic, uh, then they look to precisely these issues. What does it mean for me in my city? What does it mean for... Uh, and this is what scientists uh, normally uh, don't address, uh, because either it's not, it's not uh, interesting for them in terms of publication, because if you want to make a publication on uh, what does it mean, in, let's say, in, in neighborhood of Brussels, then you get not published. If you have a global mo- new model for climate change, yeah, then you get published. You see what I mean? But the importance is, of course, of the latter is, is it's equally important. And, and I think this is where citizen science actually, uh, I, I, I always say citizens go where normal scientists don't go. And they go to areas which are relevant for us. And uh, it's not scientifically relevant in terms of getting it in a sexual journal, but it's relevant for our lives and we have to do it. And this is very often also the type of science which we don't fund, although it's extremely relevant. And again, an example of of an institutional challenge that we have to um, change the way we, we fund and organize science. So I, I think we have seen it over the years. Uh, I've seen this movement. So I, and I think there, of course, citizen science is actually addresses an ROI element. Eh? It addresses the element to articulate how type of innovations we want in our in our living areas. And uh, so this is uh, 
in other words, to, to drive the innovations towards social desirable outputs. So this is where citizen science contributes to. And I think uh, you see this now echoed as well in the European Commission has now, you know, a sudden way to my surprise, because I, I didn't anticipate that it would get so massive uh, policy support, but there is an enormous attention now of involving citizens in research and innovation. So I, I think um, it's a challenge. And I think what is really uh, would be new is that citizens not, as I say before, not just participate in, in science as such, but you know, co-define the research agendas. And uh, this is now an opportunity under the new framework program. And I hope that this will lead to uh, success stories. It, it's an opportunity. It's a, it's a progress in terms of policy, I would say. At the same time, it's also a challenge because it means that a lot of scientists or actors will need to work with citizens from their nature, probably not would have the inclination to do so. So uh, that means that uh, that's then also a challenge because if people are... Um, uh, let's say, forced to work together. I said we have to promote collaboration across actors, across disciplines, but if they are not uh, used to that and if they are not um, from their nature, let's say, not open to that, but forced to do it because this is what the program uh, demands, then this can uh, impact, of course, the quality. But I hope that, that uh, the RRI community, which has, of course, experience in uh, this area, would jump on that and, and say, okay, we are here to uh, assist um, because this this is what it's so it's an opportunity and a challenge which we are facing us. I think this is also uh, the message we had in this in this article um, where you refer to. No, that's really interesting and kind of leads on to my next point, just because a lot of the EU projects which are focused on RRI, RESPIOS included, are about introducing these principles and practices into groups of universities, either around Europe or wider afield. But your work with the EU Commission probably gets more at the base level of policy change and changes to modern research practices. Would you say that was true? Yes, I think you can most clearly can see it now at, at, at the instrument, we, you know, which we call a mission-oriented research. I mean, there you see, you know, the whole language of the program, which is on co-design co and co-creation, is, of course, uh, an RRI language, I would say. The involvement of, of, of stakeholders and citizens co-define research and innovation. And then, of course, also the element of, of mission-oriented research in terms of that we want to address particular societal challenges with a priority and that, that we democratize the decision-making about which missions we should have and uh, that we have a broad involvement about uh, discussion, how we... Uh, define uh, the missions. So these elements are, are clearly uh, RRI language. It, it's not uh, not referred to explicitly anymore, but these, these co the components are actually there. And, and RRI is, of course, a strategic objective of the program as such. It's in the legal requirement. So it's uh, pretty much anchored, uh, I would say. Now, so the theory at the moment is um, not bad. Uh, if I would say of, of positive, but pretty good. Uh, it's now a matter of uh, whether these things will be implemented well and um, and indeed will lead to um, what I said before, institutional changes. So uh, also indeed within universities and uh, do and um, and fund the research. 
This is a bit of a curveball question to finish off with, but as you've done a review of sort of the past decade of RRI, and obviously since that decade began, there's been a magnitude of changes, as you say, uh, the onset of COVID and everything has sort of caused a shift, but also public engagement, how the media talks about science, how connected we are through smart technology and broadband. I don't know, do you have a prediction for the next 10 years, perhaps? Uh, yeah, well, the prediction predictions are always uh, <laughs> difficult to make, but I, I think one of the uh, biggest issue is how we uh, see uh, knowledge generation in science as a common good, yes or no. If I use the uh, example of COVID again, and drive it a little bit further, then we can say, okay, the the knowledge we produce on these viruses should actually be a common good. Uh, it's, and it should be also the facts in which we produce and which we employ is actually, should actually be a common good because we are actually only safe if everybody has access to those vaccines. So uh, this is why I actually also called um, for vaccines as a planetary public good, not just as a national public good, which is actually in a certain way established in Europe because uh, European uh, health policy at the national level have ensured, of course, access to those vaccines for their citizens. Um, But we haven't done so yet on the planetary level. And and it's equally uh, important. And it's, of course, an illusion to think that if you you have only access to these vaccines in Europe and not elsewhere, that we then are safe and we are not. So this idea of articulating what are common goods, the same like uh, access to clean water or clean air, this type of issues. Are we willing to address this issue more radically even than we did in the COVID case? And I think this is a big challenge. You can see also in if these terms like RRI and open science further evolve and are adopted by, let's say, institutions which were previously our opponents, so to speak, or people who were actually resistant to this change, you can also note that they accommodate these words like open science, but they actually don't do open science. So you, you, you see now an involvement of open science in terms of what we what you can call gold open access to uh, to publications, for example. And that means that that means, for example, again, a sort of exclusion of uh, knowledge actors. You know, if for example, if you don't work at a university and you want to write a scientific article, you don't get it published because you would need to bring twenty thousand dollars with you to get it published in open access. So, so it's strange. You say okay, you want to have open access, but you have actually not the resources to do so. So, it's actually, an anti-open science to do open access in this way. So, so you see that there are elements in there's a game going on where people accommodate terminology you have introduced but they implemented in a way that it's it has nothing to do with open science at all in in fact it's the contrary and the same is happening uh, by the big publishers who actually has turned themselves in big data uh, management uh, industries and uh, they have the power to direct research and um, and uh, catch their researches in their system this is a new uh, challenge for us whether in science as such remains also a knowledge a common good uh, element and i'm not sure if there is enough awareness in the public policy 
sector that this is actually at risk. Even with um, open science, which is now adopted by uh, some of the other actors, could lead actually to a situation that um, this common uh, knowledge as a common good is actually further at danger or even, uh, even stronger than before. So I, I think this is, uh, I, I'm worrying about this and this would also then connect to the type of prediction you can make. I mean, if, if the commodification and privatization of, of knowledge and the private exploitation of um, that science continues to stay only a competitive uh, business, also in industrial terms, I don't say that you should not you should not have competition, but if if the overall picture is too much like that, if we don't counterbalance this with a collaborative public uh, support of science, uh, then then we also don't get RRI. So uh, so this is uh, and this is where my prediction based upon. If would uh, we can articulate this, then I, we have big chances to uh, to to make progress. If we are not, then uh, we still uh, face uh, the same issue as before. And, and so you can also look at the Green Deal as like this. If you look to it in ways, okay, this is a uh, way of getting uh, governments interested in outcomes and, and, and uh, putting institutional constraints to market actors and incentives to, do, to, to produce particular outcomes, this can work. If this is done in terms of a knowledge as a common good, then probably we'll get there. But if this is done in a way, let's say, in the same way as uh, before, we say, okay, we just uh, incentivize market actors and we leave it up to the market to, to, to produce these outcomes, then you will certainly get some outcomes, but not the type where, which we want. So, um, so not the type of outcomes which will actually solve also the issues. This is the double challenge. I would not dare to predict where we go. Maybe uh, maybe we will have to face a new crisis. Huh? If, if it takes too long to, uh, to get uh, the energy transition, if we are too slow in the process, maybe then public actors will get stronger in their interventions. That can also be. But um, this, it, it, it really depends on that uh, element, I think. Thank you for joining us today, Rene. Oh, it's a pleasure, Christopher. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you. The Respios project is funded by the EU with the grant number 872146. To learn more about the Respios project and the other pillars of RRI, please go to respios.eu. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.